Well, we're super lucky that uh, Tom has made time for us today. I know, uh, depending on where you're at in the United States, it's uh, very much daytime. I know that it's uh, the evening over there, so I appreciate him taking his time to do this with us here at the end of the day. Uh, Tom, I have unmuted you, so I'll leave you unmuted so you can jump in um, and, and, and uh, it should work out. Can you hear me well? I can hear you. Very nice. Perfect. Wonderful. Thank you so much again. And thank you all. Big pleasure. And thank you all for, for joining uh, from all parts of the world, wherever you're at. Um, you know, I don't know how many of you know our story at Movement Brooklyn, um, but due to everything that's gone on, we were forced to first, obviously, close the doors at our gym. And then more recently, we were forced to uh, give up our lease on the space. Um, so we've just been operating digitally ever since. Um, and when we had to make that choice, we put it out there to the world. Tom was actually one of the first people to reach out and just, you know, send his condolences and, and support. And um, coincidentally, I think it was the same day he had uh, advertised that he would be teaching an online class for five weeks. Um, so I decided to jump in on that. And along the way, I've been doing some other projects online. We started doing some evening chats and it just occurred to me, um, well, you know, there's some really interesting people and we've never been more connected in some ways digitally than ever. Um, you know, maybe we should do some talks and do some interviews with, with people who are out there who have some information that a lot of people want to be connected to. And, and because of the interaction with Tom, I thought, well, this should be the first person this should be the one. Um, so Tom and I actually met, I think about two and a half years ago now. And uh, I, I trained jujitsu, I was training jujitsu at the Marcelo Garcia Academy in New York City. And I had just started, I, I was maybe five or six months in. And I always took the midday classes. And a lot of the people who show up for these midday classes are either regulars who have you know, kind of fake jobs um, or people who are traveling. So a lot of travelers, like they're coming and visiting those midday classes. And I was partnered up with Tom, but not really being aware of, of all things movement or all people movement, I had no idea who I was partnered with. So we're training together and we're practicing and everything. And I'm observing the way he's moving and I'm, I'm hearing kind of the cues that he's giving me and I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, oh, this guy knows something, right? Like he has a blue belt on, but more is happening than that. Um, and I, I forget what we're doing, but I may be holding his sleeves at one point and he grabs my arm and he kind of shakes it and he says, you should empty your arms. And that was the moment I was like, I need to talk to this guy after this class, you know? I was, <laughs> I just realized, I was like, oh, he's, he's thinking about it. Um, it was just such a small little moment. And when we chatted, I, I realized, oh, Tom uh, is an acrobat. He's a capoeirista. He's a dancer. He's a teacher. He's traveling in the United States teaching at the time. And at that moment, I was working on some acrobatics, some soft acrobatics that I was really struggling with. And when he explained to me that he was an acrobat and he teaches and everything, I said, well, I don't know what your schedule is, but can I pay you to come out and, and teach me some things that you know? Um, so I think he came out to Movement Brooklyn, again, like right after we opened and worked with me two or three times and spent a lot of time. We, we ended up um, spending more time than we were scheduled for together. And we, we, we took some walks together and chatted and I got to know him and, and really appreciated his perspective, not just as someone who has information and can do really amazing things, but someone who has a really great perspective on, on, on approach, on practice, um, on, on just being a person. And, you know, it kept me interested in a lot of the things that he was doing throughout uh, the rest of the time between then and now. And then coincidentally, again, when we, um, right before we closed the gym, I was scheduled to go and take Tom's class in San Francisco. Um, he was supposed to be teaching in Berkeley and I was going to be hopping on a flight and everything in the world changed very quickly and the flight got canceled. The, the workshop was canceled. Um, so 
in a lot of ways we've been kind of like orbiting around each other and, and, and reconnecting in different ways and in different places. And, and now I've been fortunate enough to take his class online. Um, so I know that there's a lot that I'm interested in about Tom. And I know there's a lot that you are, so I, I want to get into it. I'm, I'm curious just by, because we met doing jujitsu and I know that a lot of people here who are participating are people who exist in many different um, movement disciplines. I don't know how many people grapple and how many people do jujitsu, but I think a lot of people who are, are maybe exist in the dance world and maybe some people who exist in the martial arts or um, you know, grappling realm don't necessarily see that connection. Can you explain a little bit about how you found grappling, found jujitsu, decided to make that a part of your practice? Yes, definitely. Uh, I mean, first of all, I think that uh, we, we should continue to do interviews just for this amazing introduction. I mean, it's, it's the best, the best way is to present me that the guy that you met in the jujitsu class and just told you empty your arms and you, yeah. <laughs> this is like, uh, well, the part I will that, keep it. The part that I left out is that you levitated off the mat. <laughs> this is true. This is true. You should tell also this next time. Um, no, but, um, yeah, but actually it, it, it was quite a memorable meeting. I, I also remember this. Uh, and I, I think that, you know, it's like, it's almost like you can use this meeting as a, as a metaphor to, to what's interesting for me in, in, in jujitsu, in martial arts in general. Um, and this is, it's communication. You know, that's, that's, that's the biggest aspect. Uh, and I think that um, my, my journey with, with martial arts is, is from ver very early on. My parents, when I was very young, they sent me to uh, Karate Kyoku Shinkai. And I competed in this as a kid. Um, and then later, I was doing a lot of capoeira. I did uh, some taekwondo. Um, yeah, I ended up... Uh, I moved to the States for a year when I was 15. I did a little bit of wrestling. When I lived in Japan, I did a little bit of, uh, a little bit of uh, Korsen Judo and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So I have kind of a, a very mixed and, and it can almost seem like a messy background of martial arts. Like it's not, uh, um, it, it's not so logical and it's not so formal uh, because martial arts for me was always a practice of, of a certain co communication, a certain mental quality. Um, that I think is very essential, you know, to learn how to uh, communicate with people through a space that allows uh, resistance, uh, that allows to take your uh, aggression and make something that is, is, um, is non-harmful, you know, mm -hmm. because, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, even when we met, I remember, like, we're working on this whip, you know, and it was like, um, I, I even, I, I remember that, that, there was the thing that like, you know, because it was a, it was kind of a sweep with the leg. So if like you grab too strongly, you know, like you're kind of clearly your weight is not shifted in a way that allows you to work your legs strong, you know, because you, you pull a lot, you, you take a lot of weight into your chest. Yeah. Um, so it was, it, this type, this type of communication is fascinating. You know, and it's something that it cannot be reached, I think, in any other way. It cannot be reached through um, words. It cannot be reached uh, through um, clear concept. It re it's being reached physically. Mm -hmm. um, and then I don't think that martial arts is a way to communicate all of our uh, human capacities, but I don't think that any um, discipline, uh, regardless of how open it is, is um, capable of communicating all the physical uh, human things that we would like to communicate. So martial arts for me is always something that I do to a certain level in order to communicate those things uh, that I cannot communicate in other places. Yeah. Well, I noticed when you were describing a lot of your background, so much of it, especially like in, in childhood, they're collaborative practices right? Not a lot of the things you were describing were practices that are, are performed by yourself, right? Mm -hmm. So at a really young age, it sounds like you were spending a lot of time learning different forms of communication before you kind of went off and had opportunities to maybe explore, you know, your own individual space. 
Yeah, this is true. I mean, it's something that I didn't realize actually until until later age, you know, in communicating with other people. Um, and I, I had I had this theory a few years ago that um, we we reached to this um, phase in Western society that to practice something individually um, is a very very uh, luxurious thing. Mm. That like um, you you kind of need a, a a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of circumstances which are, you know, uh, are designed, you know, usually through, through being part of a, of a certain class that allows you to, to get really good at something that you do alone. Um, most of the things that are accessible to all have a certain uh, group context. I'm not sure about this theory anymore. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's like, I think it's very arguable what I'm saying now. Uh, but I remember that as a kid, um, and, and, and if I opened up with communication, everything I did was always in a group context. You know, all the sports, all the arts, um, and therefore it, it it creates a lot of. Um, I, I think it creates a lot of a lot of um, possibilities that um, in, in solo practice are are a little bit um, a little bit different. Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't know, the trajectory of developing oneself as, as, a, real, as a real solo uh, researcher is something that I know very little about in that yeah. sense. Well, I noticed taking your class, you know, in terms of being a, like a solo researcher, and it almost se seems like it's a tool that's grown out of being somebody who's trying to explore what it means to be uh, researching alone. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you you use the term imagination a lot, and you use it as a tool in really interesting ways. And it's something that I don't see. It's, I mean, especially in like a lot of like Western practices. Um, the only time I really remember being asked to use imagination as a tool was when I was in theater school, and it was similar to what you do. Um, but it's somehow it's neglected because you can't, you can't grab onto it. You know what I mean? Like in jujitsu, you can grab on to that blue belt or that purple belt and it has some sort of meaning to it. Whereas imagination, you're, you're kind of like lobbing things into the air and people try to grab it. And then and it's almost like a cloud of smoke and it just, your hand just reaches right through. Um, but I really think it's amazing because people are learning more and more through research. You know, people always want to attach everything to science like that, you know, finally puts the stamp on things, but the power of imagination, it's such a really, it's a, such a powerful tool. I just read a, a book on, on neuroplasticity and they were saying that imagining a task can be as powerful as actually practicing the task. Um, and it, that's not exactly how you always use it, but can you speak a little bit how, about how you've leaned towards imagination, how you've gravitated towards it, um, how you use it as a teaching tool? Um, well, it, it's a really nice, it's a really nice question. And also it's not exactly the connection that you make, but th that's how I, I, I read it or I, I hear it. And um, if we're talking about imagination in a group context, that's exactly the balance. As, as a kid, I was always in group activities, but expressing my internal world was always through the imagination. So this was exactly the balance. You spend a lot, a lot of time with a lot of people, uh, but you learn to live it also with the people, but also with what happens uh, within you. And, and the reason that is not nourished so much, I think that, um, that you know, there's, man, there's many reasons. And um, probably one of the biggest ones is this strong um, dichotomy that we have uh, in our days between things that can be measured with scientific tools mm -hmm. and things that cannot be measured with scientific tools. And I know that as soon as like, you know, um, usually when, when people go, go too abstract, it's very quickly can become very non-tangible as you said it. Uh, but as somebody that, for example, very much appreciates scientific tools, I also know, in the context of physical activity, where do they end? Okay, so you gave the example of jiu-jitsu and of belts, and as any um, a, a good 
fighter would tell you, belts merely hold your pants. It doesn't have anything to do with how you fight, you know. Um, and it's the same day that we were rolling in Marcelo Garcia. They made me stay for the black belts training. And I was like, you know, moving around there because I'm moving a little bit awkward for a fighter. And they were curious about it, regardless of, of you know, my belt. And it's something that I had since my beginning because of my background and so on and so on. So um, I'm giving this example just to, to, to state that as much as we can rely on scientific tools, once you start to work a bit more in depth with movement, you understand how um, deeper the possibilities are with things that cannot be measured so precisely. Mm -hmm. uh, now, I think imagination is huge. If um, me, because I'm also, um, uh, I'm also acting professionally in, in the arts field. So of course, in arts, imagination is everything. It's the biggest, it's the biggest joy, is the, um, is the inspiration, is the, is the objective, you know, to, to take your imagination and, and through actions, bring it, out, bring it out into the world. But even if, you know, even if we stay a little bit in, in fields that are a bit more measured and a bit more um, progressing through, um, through scientific tools, um, I think there's many examples of how the, the limit between like, you know, the imagination and, and the, the concrete actions is not so clear. Um, a few years ago, I was talking a lot about Usain Bolt. I was very curious about him and his technique. And I have a couple of friends who are um, uh, Olympic sprinters. And it was very interesting to see that in the time of his rise and when he was like kind of the, the fastest man in, in, in the athletics, um, he was working so much with all of this, um, almost like a race for him was almost like a show. He would start and like the way that he would like warm up would be so theatrical. He would make facial gestures and would look at the other people. And he would make like kind of gestures as if he's going to like, you know, eat or bite the other racers. Mm -hmm. And then when he finishes, he had the thing with the bow and arrow and the thing of like, you know, pretending that he's like kind of this, this sometimes this tiger, sometimes this kind of, I don't even know what's, what it means. Like a, um, like a Greek sculpture, you know, like, and you could see that his performance is so vivid, you know, and that his, his whole engagement is, is almost like so much more full. You know, he's emotionally there. He's sensationally there. He's not just in his technique of like, you know, lifting the legs and falling in a certain angle. He has a much more of a total multisensory experience. And I think the ability to tap into such a multisensory experience has a lot to do with how much you allow yourself to imagine regardless of which type of activity so i think this uh yeah this answers the question to a certain level yeah and it reminds me of something that i've been listening to recently this um one of alan watts's lectures talking about you know just suggesting the idea of kind of treating your experience each moment as, a, as though you're part of a drama, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of like the all the world's a stage and the people are merely players type idea, but kind of committing to the drama. Totally. And you know, and on that note, um, that the ability to, to, to imagine is also the ability to think and to see reality as metaphors. Mm -hmm. And we, again, you know, as a society, because a lot of dichotomies in education and in fields we used to think of metaphors as something that is like it it's almost like it's fancy it's luxury you know you should treat things as they are in front of you and if you know if you have the space and the time or if you're an author or a poet or a painter then you can think in metaphors but otherwise you know things you should think about it the way the way they are you know and i put it like uh, but i think that metaphors is is a very essential way of, of perceiving reality at the end of the day. It's not something that is luxurious. And for example, you know, um, there's a lot of questions in, um, in, uh, in that sense about, um, about uh, utility. You know, if you listen to architects, um, architects talk about where the inspiration coming from, you know, which is very interesting for me because if you think about uh, to design a home is to design, is to design the thing that is the most utilitarian thing that we can think of in our modern society is the place where people need to sleep, eat, 
uh, go to the restroom and so on and so on. But all great architects, they're not thinking about the utility, you know, they think about other things. They think about the joy of their childhood from looking at animals, uh, about um, the, the aesthetics of, of, of flow, of water, you know, a lot of things that doesn't have to do something that is directly connected, like uh, uh, doesn't seem uh, at the beginning is directly connected. Uh, but actually, this is what allows the whole thing to sit together. Uh, I don't know if it if it, if it makes it makes sense what I'm saying. I don't know if it makes sense to everybody listening, but to me, in a, in this moment, it makes a lot of sense because Alexa's mom, who's been participating in our Movement Brooklyn live classes, mm -hmm. has watched some of the the games we play and some of the approaches and some of the tools. And after one of the classes, she came up to me and she said, "You know, I read this book in college, which would have been in like um, I guess maybe the 70s." She said, "I read this book in college that I think you should read." It's called The Poetics of Space. Uh -huh. and, I don't, and what you're talking about is a lot of what that book is. Uh -huh. um, it's kind of uh, using like the home as a metaphor for the mind and consciousness and then vice versa. And it's what exactly. exactly this. And if you think about it, also the way we design cities, you know, I've been fortunate to travel a lot, but a lot of the cultural differences, you know, which we tend to like, you know, to kind of give them to, to things that are very, very far in the past. Can, you can really see a culture by the way that the cities are designed. Mm -hmm. you know, all European uh, classical cities have a city center, mm -hmm. you know. Um, a Japanese city is like, is divided with like this kind of flow, a uh, jungle-like flow. You know, it's like a jungle. It's like you take you... It's all circular. It's all like, you know, one thing turns into another thing. And, and uh, Israel, <laughs> Israel is a mess. <laughs> you know, in Israeli city, it's usually just a mess. You know, it's like all of these things, it's, it's, and, and it's true. You know, the perception of space is not something that is coming from a straight logic. It's something that is primarily coming from certain poetics. Mm -hmm. You know, and then if you start to like kind of go down and deconstruct this idea, you will end up in movement and, you know, movement is a certain way to occupy space. Mm -hmm. So also there, you know, like the imagination is very, very integral. Well, the reason, I, yep. I was going to say, I just, I love that you, you, you challenge people in this way because it's so, especially I think in Western culture, you know, they, they want to be handed that like logical thing. They want to be handed that stone that they can hold on to that has a meaning to it. And I, and I love that you, you challenge people and, and, and throw that out there and say, you know, I want you to use your imagination in, in this realm and they, and people keep trying to grab for it because they want to hold on to something and, and them not realizing that it, it, it almost doesn't matter. It's almost like, you're crumbling up a piece of paper and throwing it into the back of your head and letting it uncrumble when it needs to and just stay crumbled if it doesn't need to be needed. Completely, completely. And I think that also the, the, uh, one of the biggest mistakes is to think that this, this you know, admitting these things is something that goes against, for example, logic, or yeah. as I said, it goes against scientific tools. You know, yeah. things should be measured when it's possible but it's not always possible. And we should also be dynamic about questioning. Okay, where should I, you know, use a certain linear and structural way of understanding ideas. And when it's, is, you know, it's just, as you said, it's the crumbled paper that is my whole set of experiences and things that I like that is circumstantial to my life, which means, you know, this is like where, and this is where the imagination kicks in, you know? Yeah. A certain accumulation of experiences and memories, which is subjective, is not um, common, right. let's say. Well, that's the, the issue, too, with people who start limiting their exposure, limiting their experiences, is that they're, they're limiting their imagination, right? And then once your imagination is limited, you're also limiting the imagination of your collaborators, because every time you collaborate, you're taking a piece of their imagination and vice versa. So it speaks to the idea of like being out there and getting information, reading, watching, listening, observing, participating in as many different places as possible. Completely. And 
I think that that what is like you know what could support it in a way is that today the 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 easy access to information can really inspire to see things from different perspectives. Mm-hmm. Um, like for example, now I'm I'm really you 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 talked about a book called The Poetics of Space, and actually I heard it from another author that I really appreciate. His name is Yuhani Palazma, mm-hmm. which is a Finnish architect mm-hmm. that. Um, he he was very famous about uh, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, like built a lot of very, very beautiful things, like amazing projects. And then at a certain point, uh, he started writing and then he closed his architecture firm. Uh, because I think, I mean, I might be here saying something that is not exactly true, but like there, he has something about like not needing to build anymore in the world. And also he felt that his practice kind of evolved into, um, into writing rather than uh, making buildings. Mm-hmm. That he said that there is a, a lot of overlap. Mm-hmm. And, and some of his books are exactly about, like for example, the topics you talk, we talk about. He has a book called The Thinking Hand, The Embodied Image, mm-hmm. The Eyes of the Skin. You know, it's exactly all of this. Um, and it's, it talks a lot about how, you know, how your personality, which is, you know, also your imagination, also your, your choices, also your appearance, how it all being kind of channeled uh, towards your choice of creation, which can be writing, painting, making a building, making a, a, making a role, making a handstand, you know, fighting, so on, so on, so on. Um, and how basically you perceive the world through those creations, mm-hmm. you know, so this kind of in and out relationship. Um, and um, yeah, and I think that, that nowadays it's much more easy to, for example, um, to get information from someplace really, really far mm-hmm. that totally throws out of your like kind of original uh, concept, you know? So again, it's very easy now that we started with martial arts, but like in different countries that the, the cultural content of martial art, the, country, the cultural context is so different. You know, American jiu-jitsu is something very, very different at the end of the day than Brazilian jiu-jitsu, Japanese jiu-jitsu, even if they practice the same moves. Mm-hmm. And there is similarity in the kind of the space and the intentions. There's a lot of things within it that really, really changes the perspective. You know, from my experience in America, sports is really strong there. So like, you know, there's a lot of kind of, there's a lot of efficiency. There's a lot of like good vibes competition and stuff like this. But then of course, you know, Japan has a bit more like this sense of respect and Brazilian has this more sense of play. And nowadays it's very easy to like, even if I am practicing a certain, uh, in, in a certain jiu-jitsu school in America, to, to even listen to some Brazilian, to some Japanese, you know, or even what happens now, like, you know, this cross, cross ocean conversation mm-hmm. that allows you to see things from different perspectives. And then you come next time and you see like, okay, what happens if I, fight as if I'm playing rather than if I'm competing, mm-hmm. you know, and something totally changes in the creation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course, that if you think about the same thing in, in writing, in painting, in again, like, you know, all of this kind of creation of taking your ideas and putting them in the physical world and then imagining how we, how it would be to do it with different intentions. Mm-hmm. I think it's, this is something that is much more accessible nowadays than it used to be before we had, you know, all of this crazy technology that allows us to communicate so efficiently. Yeah. So. Well, also you bring up this idea of like cultural context. And I was thinking, I mean, especially considering kind of the state of the world, you know, I was thinking uh, about some things I'd read recently about breath and breathing and at times in history in other parts of the world. And I assume in some other places still, there was a strong cultural connection to a lot of these things like breath, like, like movement, there was real cultural connections to, to these pieces. Whereas like in the United States and I assume in other like Western cultures, there's not so much of this like cultural connection to some of these really like uh, important levels of being a human being. And in some ways we're, we're, we're witnessing some of the repercussions of that. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that um, I think that there is something very um, vain in segregation. Mm-hmm. You know, like 
to think that like we as humans and this is as societies as individuals and any 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 uh any structure of of people can really segregate the elements of our lives to such a, a high level this is something that is very vain and has consequences it has uh, repercussions uh and i think you know like again we're, we're jumping here between like you know larger scale and smaller scale but in theory, you shouldn't be able to learn anything movement without on the way acquiring a decent uh, level of knowledge of how it is to breathe this thing. You know, the fact that nowadays, you know, and maybe this is the, the, the flip side of what I said before of the easiness of information, mm -hmm. that you can get a lot of knowledge in something movement without knowing how to breathe it well, you know, it shows the problems of segregation. Um, I, I hope that the segregation is the, the right term, right? It, it means like, you know, dividing into pieces, yeah. you know, when isolated pieces. Mm -hmm. um, when it allows you so, to skip steps. It allows you to skip steps and it allows you sometimes to over-prioritize, yeah. which, um, which I don't think that like, uh, that always like, you know, um, we don't always have this luxury. Uh, yeah. to prioritize right uh, again you know we're now now in the middle of uh, of this like global crisis which is also like you know it's it's very interesting mm -hmm. you know how um how this kind of like you know segregated information is like being all of a sudden like you know every little piece of information becomes such a big deal you know it's almost like no, nothing nothing has been thought uh, through yeah uh, throughout this whole crisis you know, which is, which is very interesting to live in a time like this and to see, okay, there is, there's some issues with this, you know, there's. Yeah. Well, in, in, in denying the, the interconnectedness of all things. Exactly. Exactly. Right? There's a massive denial of, of that interconnectedness. Exactly. Now, if, if you brought up the breath topic, you know, so nowadays it's very interesting, like, you know, that uh, in a lot of, a lot of places that deal with, uh, with movement is almost like, you know, breathing becomes like you know there's courses just about breathing there's like you know it all also becomes like a piece which i'm still you know i'm still a little bit struggling with this you know because for example for me my whole starting as a kid you know um my main objective as a mover was to be to be virtuosic to be in the center for many years then at about 25 years old this starts to shift and you're like, okay, you know, I'm not going to be virtuosic forever. You know, like 30 something is already like, I start to feel the limitations probably in 10 years. I will be, I will feel it even more, but then like, you know, the priorities very slowly and very naturally shift. And I remember that at about, you know, 25, when I started to feel less virtuosic, you know, until then the virtuosity level just like, you know, increases and then you start to feel it. And then I started to like, you know, start to consider it's like, okay, I was, breathing quite inefficiently all these years because I could rely on my, on my endurance, on my muscles, and even on my, you know, even on my um, confidence. My imagination enough, alone could make me do things for a long time without getting tired. And now I need to start seeing, okay, how do I economize? So I turned to this, uh, uh, to, to this topic, and even though it was there all alone, I, had, I made very little progress in it because of lack of focus, okay? But it was there, you know, I have a lot of input on breathing from, you know, from dance, from martial arts, from yoga, from all of these things. And I see nowadays, again, you know, it, it might sound a bit nostalgic, but it's almost like you can go learning something for 10, 15 years and like, you know, they never talk about breath even once. Mm -hmm. um, and then you need to take a, you know, you need to take a course again, you know, I don't want to, uh, to be critical to any any body of knowledge out there because you know it happens as a phenomena which means it's things that are needed this is why people offer them but me i have a little bit of criticism there is like how come we got into the place that people need to learn how to breathe you, right. you know it's like uh, that's what i mean about kind of culturally like that at, at, at other times in in different cultures and different places that information was being shared earlier on 
as part of the culture. Oh, I'm, I'm, ex, you know, part of being human is, is learning about the breath, learning about what you eat, learning about how you kind of treat this apparatus. Right. And now we're in this situation where it's like, people are having to seek it out as almost specializations later on when it's something that maybe elders should have been handing down in the beginning. I think, I think that, that like, you know, there is a lot of very, um, There is, you know, again, we spoke about globalization and I think another thing that like what happens now, nowadays and again, you know, jumping between movement and, and, and things that are more global is that um, we really push the possibility of having a very individual identity, which I think is very good on certain terms uh, because like there is, listen that, you know, the, the, there is more... Um, in Hebrew, this it's the same. I'm, I'm getting I'm I'm getting confused because in Hebrew, patience and acceptance is the same word, you know, which is really nice. It's a very nice. Uh, it's a very interesting. But I want to say there's more patience. There's more acceptance for people to defining themselves, you know, uh, uh, and then you know you start to go into into gender, into languages, um, into uh, cultural customs. You know, it's you can today and you live in new york which is like you know it's one of the biggest cosmopolitans uh, uh, in the world like you know and it's so mixed um, but of course again you know having individual priorities means that like you can only see things from your own perspective um, and then like the culture probably a little bit before what it allowed is a little bit like you know more of a kind of a, a common ground that supposed to serve you with a bit more of like, you know, necessities. What I don't want to get, to, to get into too much is to say if it was more or less trustworthy, because I don't know, you know, so as much as I have like, you know, my criticism for, for the, let's say for the modern movement culture, I also, I don't know how it was before, you mm -hmm. know, so I can speculate that there's certain things were lost. And for example, this is for sure, because if you open any old martial arts book, any old uh, uh, self-practice book, you know, there is this guidelines about the breath. And nowadays you can be certified with knowing almost nothing about it. You know, so for sure, this is a topic that had changed. Yeah. Um, but definitely the shift between a bit more of like, you know, local reliable cultures rather than like, you know, globalization, which puts you as an individual to choose your, culture you know it comes with a with a certain cost and i think this is basically what you're talking about um i want to switch gears just for a moment because i want to make sure we we open it up to questions here yep i'm curious how someone like you who who comes from like such a wide range of disciplines and the things you do you're you're really strong with you're you're a dancer you're an acrobat um where do you go to seek discomfort now? Where, where are the places that you need to step into? What hats do you try to wear that are really outside of your comfort zone considering all the experience that you have? I'm curious about that. Uh, very interesting question. Uh, to be honest, recently, uh, my, my biggest... Um, biggest step out of my comfort zone was to sustain all the things that I want to do. Um, you know, like even, even to have a mix that felt to me balanced, which was to create, you know, artistically, uh, to still perform on stage regularly, to meditate, to fight and to sustain my, my physicality, like, you know, or, um, more like a skill level. It, it was very challenging. Uh, a couple of months ago, I also, I, I had to go um, um, through a surgery because I had like a, an injury for two, about two years. And I, I had to go through an operation in my wrist, which was kind of like, you know, um, it was kind of a red flag of being apparently too long outside of my comfort zone. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I'm not exactly sure. You know, now what is, uh, what would be my, my balance to step out of my comfort zone? Cause I feel I'm spending almost constant time there. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's not specifically like pushing in a certain direction It's more in sustaining something that's holistic, mm -hmm. you know, and the limitations of time and the limitations of 
the practices have their own physical and mental demands. And then like, you know, if I want to create something, I need to be fully there. And then to afterwards to go and to do something totally different. It, it, it has a lot of like kind of, a, um, there is a mental fatigue, you know, of cleaning up and coming clean to another thing, you know, not to, to, to let things like, you know, become overlapping too much. So sustaining this, this would be to be out of my comfort zone. And I think that the, for the past couple of years, I've been almost constantly there. Wow. Um, what, what was the injury? I'm just curious. It, I had a very rare condition in my wrist. It's called Kim, Kimbox disease. It's mm-hmm. uh, the, bone, the bone that is called the lunate, mm-hmm. which is the middle bottom bone in the um, carpal bones. Uh, it stopped receiving blood. So what was also interesting is that it's a, a very unknown condition. Um, and therefore, the methods of treating it are, uh, are very wild. You know, it's, it's, been, it's defined as a, as a rare disease. In my, in my case, it was quite obvious that, of course, that as an acrobat, somebody that's doing so much handstands and martial arts and stuff like this, you know, it's, it's quite easy to, to just see that probably I had some kind of, you know, doing, going on one hand without too much attention, you know, and then like, you know, kind of twisting something, getting a hit, something moves, something gets fractured, and then the bone gets out of line. But in many other cases, people just end up with this condition, just, you know, and, and the medicine don't know exactly from where. Hmm. So, um, the, so most of the ways to treat it are quite aggressive to cut the, 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 one of the, the bones of the, um, of the forearm uh, to do some kind of fusion in the bones there. But I found um, a very do- good doctor here in Barcelona that he's doing a, a process that's called revascularization, which is a process that I very much believe in because you basically bring fascia from underneath the wrist, uh, fascia that is active and alive, and you connect it you know, through, of course, through veins mm-hmm. to the bone that's not receiving blood. Um, and I believe in it very much because I think that um, regenerative um, uh, capabilities are very, very big in, in the body, you know, and very unknown. Uh, so I went through this surgery and it was a success. And now the bone is uh, uh, getting blood again and I'm already in, uh, in recovery. And uh, you saw me the, the other week already moving and yeah. all is fine. Uh, but yeah, it was also a very, very interesting process. And, and definitely this was uh, also a big out of the comfort zone uh, experience. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, I want to open it up for some questions here. So this is what I'd like to do for you guys. Um, if you have a question, like I said, if you go into the chat box, there's the ability to just raise your hand if you want to speak and then I can unmute you. If you have a question, but you would prefer not to speak, you can just type it into the chat box and I'll, and I'll ask for you. Um, uh, but yeah, if anyone has any questions, I, I'd love to hear what you guys are curious about. Um, any questions you have for, for Tom? Don't be afraid. Uh, Itai, I'm going to unmute you. Uh, oop, I lost you one second. Okay, you're unmuted. Oh, no, you're not. One moment. Sorry. There you go. Can you guys hear me? Yes. Yes. Awesome. Hey, Tom, thank you so much. I really uh, enjoyed your conversation with Kyle. Um, so I'm, I'm a scientist and I'm applying to medical school right now. And I really um, was interested in that question that you talked about, the limitation of science. And as someone who's, uh, you know, getting into movement practices and thinking about how I can, you know, incorporate that into my you know, professional career and things like that, I was wondering, where do you see the role of science and medicine and movement, you know, kind of with a new generation of physicians or scientists that are practitioners as well? How, how do you see science, um, you know, playing a role in movement moving forward? Uh, good question. Uh- I just like, before that, I have to say that um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't like, you know, for me to talk about science in general is almost like to talk about art is gen- in general. 
is too much of a, of a broad topic for me to have anything to say about it. It will be like, you know, uh, relevant. Um, what I related before to is like scientific tools and also what I can also maybe, maybe say that is very present in my practice is um, scientific thinking, you know. So there's a lot of um, tools within science, you know, analysis, conclusion, how to conduct the research, uh, which I think is huge. I think it's great. It's one of the most uh, beautiful developments uh, in the ways of thinking. You know, if you look from, from, you know, again, we talked a lot about ancient cultures to modern cultures. Science is, is in that sense, it gave a lot of tools that allows to see reality more clearly. Um, I think also in movement, you know, uh, it, it's being used mostly in um, two fields that I would say probably elite, elite level professionals um, and, you know, fitness, self-improvement. And, and I think science can be applied more widely, actually, you know. Um, a big, a, big, a big problem, a big challenge with this is like also what I said before is the, the thought that like, you know, science is something that, um, that is contradicting, for example, we, talk about, um, we talked about imagination, that it contradicts imagination. Um, I was recently, uh, um, I had to talk about creativity somewhere. So to think that like, you know, science, science and creativity is two things that like, you know, stand, which I completely don't, don't think so. Um, so I, again, you know, like a proper use of the tools, a proper use of the way of thinking, which means that like, you know, um, using it as something that is collaborative with other tools, with other forms that hasn't been found yet. Still like, you know, the sky is the limit. There's so many, there's so many possibilities and, and um, which I cannot even imagine. Uh, but um, I'm not sure if I answered the question. Um, it, you know what, it always reminds, like anytime we talk about the collaboration of like art and science or objective subjective, I always think of uh, Zen, and, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which is mm -hmm. one of my favorite books. And it talks about like the, the, the collaboration of the two coming together is where quality lies, right? And I think that- Yeah, totally. You know, I, I, I mean, it, for example, like um, we, we now, uh, me and my partner, Rosetta Tuzaus, we are um, creating a new, a new uh, performance. Mm -hmm. And one of our topics is um, how processes in nature, you know, how it affects, uh, uh, you know, human imagination, human movement, human existence, you know, um, and even more specifically, how textures in, na in, in, in nature, like kind of affect um, our body and our experience. And we're working, with, um, we're working with a New York scientist, her name is Oriane Zacks, that she's doing very interesting work about um, um, consciousness in, uh, in, in, in science. And uh, she's now um, working on a project of kind of defining where does consciousness exist in nature. Mm. It's very interesting. And what they use is basically they can kind of um, define biological processes of life and death within nature. When does a tree die? When does it live? Um, when does um, certain uh, activity, you know, uh, happens within something that you can define it as consciousness? And it's something that is falls under yes or no. Now, one of the things that I learned uh, in, in Zen, you know, is that um, any consciousness is a relationship with me. If I make a relationship with a certain element, with a certain idea, it has consciousness, but it's not within me. It's in the relationship. Mm. You know? Now, these two uh, attitudes, you know, which she defines as we can observe certain activities and they're happening, they're beginning and end as the life and death of consciousness. And me is like everything that I'm aware of, everything that I relate to is consciousness. It's not the same thing, you know, but we realized very quickly that actually considering both of them is true, even though that they cannot like, you know, not choosing uh, uh, which way we, we kind of, we decide it is more true than the other. 
this is the more beneficial for our process now, you know, for our creative process. So I think this is a very interesting way for me, like, you know, that collaboration with science was had to not come to the like, okay, science confirms or neglects my theory, but it's just another way to look at something that I wouldn't look at it otherwise. Right. So. Right. Coming back to what you were saying before, it expands your imagination at the very least. Exactly. <laughs> nice. I've got, a, I've got a, a written question here from someone who wants to know just a little more about um, how you addressed your recovery from this injury and where you're at now with this healing process. And if there have been any frustrations that have come with it and how you're addressing those frustrations. Mm. Yeah. Right now, I'm, uh, I'm recovering my range of motion mostly. Mm -hmm. um, it's basically my wrist, like, you know, it cannot flex all the way back and it cannot extend all the way. Sorry, it cannot flex forward and it cannot extend all the way back. Um, and I'm recovering this. This is my biggest now uh, task. Mm -hmm. to, to be honest, like, um, I, I had a lot of obstacles. I didn't have so much frustration. I realized very quickly that I cannot go on my hands fully now for a few good months. Mm -hmm. um, but because I have a lot of interests and a lot of curiosities, I took it as an opportunity. Uh, it was almost like a relief for me to say, okay, now I don't go into a push-up position for a few months. You know, it's a wonderful creating opportunity for me to either visit places that I would do with my hands without the hands, or just not do some things, which means there will be an ability to have more focus on other things. So uh, as much as it sounds, uh, uh, I don't know, I don't know how it sounds, but no, I didn't have frustration. Mm -hmm. um, I'm still being challenged by uh, having the ability to shift the weight fully to one hand. And I can definitely not say that it's like every day that I'm like, I'm confident that I will get there. Uh, but it's a little bit like relearning uh, a very, a very basic skill. You know, um, I think that the most similar for me now is that in, in my adult life, I had to learn languages several times. Uh, uh, first of all, to work in English, then in Japan, Japanese. Now I live in Barcelona, Catalan and Spanish. And it's a little bit like learning a language. You know, you learn a language, you have to kind of go back down to things that you learn when you were six or seven. You know, learn how to say apple, to say, how are you, you know, and, and you have to take it, you know, like you bite your lip, but you understand that it's necessary. Yeah. Um, you cannot be like, okay, you know, but fuck it in my own language. I already talk philosophy, you know? Yeah. Uh, so it's the same with the wrist. Now I enjoy to go back to basics. Um, the, the other day I just got back to, to again, picking up heavy weight, you know, like without, um, without changing the angle of my wrist. Um, so th there's a lot of relearning things that I already knew, but I, uh, I somehow enjoy it. Yeah. It reminds me of a, a teacher I had in theater school who, when we were talking about imagination, he's the person that always comes to my mind. He was a real wild man. Um, but he used to do like kind of like these improvised situations and scenes and really amazing work. But, you know, whenever something really unpredictable happened, whenever someone slipped or fell or, or tripped or someone bumped into another person, he'd always be like, no, that's the gift. That's the moment. That's the really special thing that the accident is the gift. And when you can treat bigger accidents like these gifts, that's, you know, these can be opportunities rather than like, oh, well, let's try that again. Totally. And usually it takes you to places of relearning or even not relearning only learning to, 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 to cope with things that you would never cope with, with otherwise, yeah. you know? Uh, so I, I completely agree with, uh, with your teacher. At the end of the day, an injury is a gift. Yeah. You know, it's an opportunity to learn. So I'm going to uh, unmute Toby here. I hope I said your name right. You can let me know. Um, he has a question for you. Go for it. Hi. Yeah, of course. Toby is fine. Mm -hmm. It's different in every country. So <laughs> my question is, because earlier when you were saying there now your days you can go and learn something and you don't even know how to breathe doing it or doing anything. It's interesting because then I read an article about this old Tai Chi teacher who talked about in 
when you used to start Tai Chi, they would have you stand in mountain pose for a very long time. Only like for the first two years, you would only stand there and then you would progress. So that's what I remember from the traditional styles of teaching in the Eastern world, that they always have this strong hierarchy. First you learn this, then you progress to the next step. And you may only progress when you reach those stages. And I always had the impression that it's kind of unfair because they try to put you into the same mold. But then again, in the modern world, when you can get your individualized experience, you can just skip that and go to something else. But one style that I encountered, and that's why I wanted to ask about, is the Feldenkrais method. Because first of all, that's a guy who came from science and or he applied scientific methods that he had learned as a scientist. And then he went into something else and then used it in movement. And those people, when I meet those practitioners, it's very interesting that they touch on all kinds of subjects with the same method, which is movement, even though they, and they have, they don't necessarily have answers for everyone, they, but they look for answers that are individual to everyone by giving them a process. So coming from Israel, I wondered, have you been exposed to that system? Like earlier on, did you meet it once you left Israel? What has been your impression of it? That's my question. Great, thank you. Um, uh, first of all, first of all, about this, this what you say about like you know progression. I, I also believe in uh, slow progressions. For example, you know, when uh, I'm professionally, I'm mostly. Uh, maybe it's not true nowadays, but many years I mostly behaved in the field of contemporary dance, contemporary art, where it's almost like now uh, a lot because of conceptual art, slow progression is almost like it's out. You know, it's not interesting. Like, you know, don't even show us anything that you worked a lot on, you know, because like we're, we're interested in something else, which was a very big, uh, 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 it was a very big, big struggle for me. You know, now I'm independent enough to not be uh, dependent on, uh, on any field, I feel. But um, I think there is, a, there is a very interesting term that I learned in Japan that is called shuhari. That shuhari relate, uh, refers to the levels of knowledge. So, of course, Japanese, they like to make anything super romantic. But it means that, like, you learn something and then you repeat it, you know. Uh, and then you just repeat it kind of like, you know, empty. And then little by little, you repeat it also with... Um, you learn about the intention and the result, you know, so you start every time that you repeat it to get the result also that you intend to get. And then at the end, you control so much the kind of the intention and the result that you don't need to do the action that you did at the beginning. This is when you leave your school and you leave your teacher. Usually in Japan, they will tell you it will take probably 50, 60 years. <laughs> okay. So, but if we take just the idea of Shuhari without all the aura, you know, I think that, that, um, that, learning something and repeating it same time, because we are always changing as humans, it will not put us in the certain state, you know, like, so I think that like repetition is something that I like. It's something that I appreciate. It's something that I think that to give yourself patience to repeat something is, is, uh, is great. And it can lead to creativity and to, to not only to the things that you're working on. Uh, in Israel, we, we are a very young country and a country that had, uh, a very, um, it, it's always under an existential crisis. In Israel, you don't know if the country will kind of be in, in a year or two, okay? M maybe now it's a little bit changing. I also left a couple of years ago. So, and because things changing so fast in Israel, maybe it's different. But um, the culture of Israel is very much about like very, very quickly getting to the core of the things. And that's the only thing that's important. Nothing else matters. So um, I don't know how many, you know, uh, and again, it's general, like anything that's uh, uh, about any culture. I can only say general things. There's exceptions. But this is why, for example, Israelis are sometimes rude. Because in Israel, you kind of, you go about with the culture that like, you don't really have time for manners because the important things is not in the manners. The important things are the important things. And this is what we should talk about. You know, we shouldn't waste time on the mundane on, or the, you know, what's around. Um, and I think this also is being interpreted a lot from my experience as creativity, you know, 
because you so quickly want to get to the essence and you want to kind of maximize it or you want to take it to the next level, uh, very easily it allows you to really see things that if you deal with the whole picture, you know, with everything around it, is harder to see or it just takes more time to see. Um, me, for example, I, I like this. I also know the limitation of it. But again, you know, I also lived in Japan in order maybe to balance it, which is totally the opposite. Culture, you know, this is why I started with shuhari. Shuhari is probably the most non-Israeli thing that I can think about, which I think it has value and wisdom. But then again, you know, at the end of the day, shuhari also leads you to be like, okay, I'm so much in control of my intention and my desired result that I don't need anything else. So it sounds like Shuhari is the, is the scientific process to get to be Israeli. <laughs> yeah, I'm joking, of course. Um, but, and yeah, and Feldenkrais in that sense, I think he, he also had a very interesting mix. He, he, was, he spent most of his, his career in science in France, you know, um, so he had a lot of manners. He had a lot of, uh, his science is not Israeli. His science is French, you know, uh, so... Uh, again, I'm, I'm calling things by culture and I'm, I'm saying again, it's very general, but um, Feldenkrais also has this very, very interesting uh, balance between um, something that is very essential, you know, very central. Okay, we deal just with this because this is more important, but also he has a method. He has a lot of like kind of details all around it that makes it more um, coherent. So... Um, Again, uh, maybe I'm a bit uh, messy today with the questions, but I think I'm, uh, I'm finding the answer. So I think that the answer to, to, to what you say is that like, I think repetition is important and I think that creativity is also important and finding both of them within each practice um, is something that I personally um, admire and I think has a lot of potential. Um, Tom, if you have time, can we do just one or two more questions? Sure. Wonderful. We got one that uh, someone wrote here. Um, they said, how do you slash did you cope with risk? Um, especially when teaching, um, and learning acrobatics. Um, so this is, this is, I, I think that, the, to, to really understand this, this is, uh, you, you will have to uh, come practice with me or learn from me. I'm sorry for that. <laughs> but, uh, because I think it's a very, it's a very complicated topic. Um, one of my biggest ideas about acrobatics is to take away the, um, um, the preparation climax landing, which this is the central method in almost any acrobatic discipline that I've encountered in my career. So, um, usually, if you think about gymnastics, if you think about parkour, the, the, this three phases method, what's the preparation, what's the climax, what's the landing, uh, is the way to approach almost any acrobatic challenge. And psychologically, usually what happens is that when you analyze things from this perspective, a little bit, either before the climax or after the climax, um, you have a certain very, very strong fear. For me, for example, what I try to do is to find alternatives to this way of thinking. So this way of thinking is, is kind of a base that like, okay, it's, it's kind of, it's good that I know it. But then, for example, how do I think about it with trajectories rather than um, preparation climax landing? So for example, a trajectory means that like the direction, you know, of my body in the space throughout the whole move. Okay, and then the move kind of begin, turns into one consequential act and not three separate actions. For example, you know, and then also transitions in and out of the move and changes. What it does, usually it kind of changes your relationship with fear within the move. You know, so uh, um, the fear in acrobatics is very kind of graphic. So as I said, preparation, climax, landing, usually the fear will be a little bit before, a little bit after the landing. In a trajectory, usually the fear would be much before, you know, like before you even start. So this ability to experience the fear in different places, you know, little by little minimizes the fear. Uh, so this is 
for me, the, this ability to kind of change my perspective towards the move and to strategize differently. So it's like every move that you give me, I usually try to have three, four, five strategies to how to analyze it, which means three, four, five ways to experience the fear, which means that the fear is much smaller. Uh, so this is kind of very generally, I try to give also one technical example. Of course I have more, but I think that um, to get more in depth with it, we'll have to practice together or to talk about a specific move. Well, I look forward to uh, when everything, you know, returns to a way where we can uh, come and practice with you and, and, and learn some of these things. That's what I was looking forward to doing in San Francisco. You were going to be teaching your Zen acrobatics class. This is true. This is true. Yeah. Um, I'm going to let you go and we're going to wrap here. I just wanted to make sure that everybody knows that you're teaching for, I think, another four weeks online. Is that correct? Yes, this is correct. Um, and um, I'm, I'm so, so far, I'm very happy with these classes. It's a very interesting experience for me. Uh, and I think that um, there is, uh, my, my intention in these classes is to allow people to turn their uh, utilitarian living room space into a place where they can practice some uh, art, create some art, and uh, practice their craft of moving their uh, bodies. Uh, so uh, anybody that's interested in this, regardless of level of experience, is very welcome uh, to join us. And, and what is the best way to join? Is it through your through movementarchery.com or is there a better way? Um, I, you can, um, yeah, you can sign up to movement at movementarchery.com. Also, then there is uh, B, that she's also here with us uh, in the group and she's in charge of the registration for this. So okay. I can send you the... Yeah, if you type it into the chat box, then everybody Perfect. will see it. Okay. I've, um, while you're typing it in, I've, I've taken two classes this past week and I'm planning on doing the next four. And, I, and, I, and for those of you who are kind of on the fence about it or you know, haven't done any classes online or anything, I don't know if it's been anyone else's experience taking Tom's class through this online experience, but maybe it's like the setting of your space where you live there. Maybe it's that everybody's using the same music and, and maybe it's just the simplicity um, that kind of builds, but there's a, there's a, um, there's very much like an intimacy despite everybody being all, all over the place, all over the world and you being so far away that you, you, you feel that sense participating in this class with you. And I, and I think it has a lot to do with the material and your delivery and, and like I said, um, some of these other aspects, but I strongly suggest participating in it. Um, it's, a, it's a rare opportunity to not just get to learn from Tom, which is amazing, but also to, like I said, have this very interesting intimate experience of a class, you know, that connects with people all over the world at the same time. Thank you very much. Yeah. Appreciate it. It's beautiful. Um, next week, we're going to do a talk again. Um, I'm going to have Dan Koval on. I don't know if you ever met him, Tom. He's, um, he trains at Marcello's. He's a black belt. He also has his own um, program that he teaches in Hoboken and um, in downtown uh, Manhattan, and he's going to come and, and speak a little bit, and we'll have a similar conversation, but I assume very different. Um, but yeah, so if you guys are interested in that, we'll have the sign up for that up uh, later today or tomorrow. Um, yeah, I'm very grateful that all of you made some time.